I'm Nicholas Zeppos, Chancellor at Vanderbilt University, and this is The Zeppos Report, a podcast where I have a chance to talk with the people shaping the world and helping us to understand the world. My guest today is Jeanette Sadek Khan. Jeanette is a former commissioner of the New York City Department of Transportation, and you want to talk about shaping the world, uh, Jeanette has uh, shaped the landscape of one of the world's greatest cities, New York City. She currently serves as a principal at Bloomberg Associates, a philanthropic consultancy established by Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg that advises mayors around the world to improve the quality of life for their residents. She's the author of Street Fight, Handbook for an Urban Revolution. She also serves as chairperson of the National Association of City Transportation Officials, a coalition of the transportation departments of 40 large cities nationwide. Jeanette, welcome to Vanderbilt. Welcome to the Zeppos Report, and it's great to have you in Nashville. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So um, I'm looking a little bit at your background, and you know, great liberal arts college training, mm-hmm. pra- you know, went to a great law school, and then you end up being the change agent of New York City <laughs> and its transportation and its feel in transformative ways. Where do I find that in your background, and how did you get to that position. You know, it's funny. So many times I've had conversations with people about this, and they've reflected on how their career really only makes sense in the rearview mirror. Because as you're starting off, it's not like I thought, you know, my dream goal is to be the transportation commissioner for New York City. What actually happened was, you know, I'd graduated from law school, worked at a corporate law firm, paid off my law school loans, um, was very unhappy, uh, and quit and left and decided I was going to do something very, very different. So I talked to my mom, and I used to walk around the city with my mom all the time. And I said to her, Mom, I want to do something that touches people's lives every day. And my mom said, well, sweetie, you have two choices, sanitation or transportation. And so I actually <laughs> ended up going into a transportation. True, a, a, a true, true urban York. visionary, exactly. your mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has her own story. She, yeah. She's been you know, a foundation executive. She's was a uh, covered city hall for the New York Post under Ed Koch. So she wow. has a way yeah. uh, with words that uh, <laughs> you know, one can only aspire to. Now, um we live in a time with so much technology. Mm. And as we think about cities and we're going to have uh, autonomous vehicles and all of this big data to kind of manage the flow of people. Um, yet at the same time, your career seems so human and your breakthroughs are so simple. So I'm going to transform uh, 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 an area, I'll put some lawn chairs out. Mm-hmm. How do you come at the very human, simple part of transformation while everyone is talking about technology being the driver? How do you think of them separately and together? Well, you know, our streets have basically been in a kind of suspended animation for decades, you know, 60 years. You know, you've been to New York as a New Yorker, you know. Literally, you haven't seen anything change on the streets. 
uh, and all that time. And you think about the change in cities, demographic change, techno technological change, cultural change, social change, and yet our streets are like they were in the 1950s. Right. So and if you were in business and you didn't change your major capital asset in 50 years, you probably still wouldn't be in business. So the idea was, how are we going to update this infrastructure? You know, streets don't update themselves like an iPhone app. Right. You don't just push it and get, you know, streets 4.0. <laughs> you know, you actually have to make that. You happen. do. They just have a lot of potholes. <laughs> Yeah, but somebody's got to fix the street. It's, they don't, you know, it just doesn't happen um, with a push of a button. And so what we really did was look at, and, and this was a vision that Mayor Bloomberg set out in Plan YC, the long-range sustainability plan that he had, which was looking at our city for a long, over a longer term. You know, mayors tend to look at their cities over four-year periods, and we were looking at the city over a 25-year period with this plan, and we realized that if we we're going to accommodate the million more people that were expected to come to New York City by 2030 and still improve the quality of life in our business districts and neighborhoods, we needed to do something very, very different on the streets. And it had profound implications for how people got around. We needed to make it easier to bike. We needed to make it easier to walk. We needed to make it easier to take the bus. We needed to make our streets safer because the bottom line is, is that that's the model that kids are looking for today. They want to be able to just jump on a bike or uh, jump into a, a fast bus or walk around and hang out with their friends. And frankly, they don't even want to own a car anymore. They don't want to own anything. And so, you know, the secret sauce of cities is really actually bringing those ingredients together because in this day and age, people and companies can move anywhere. And so these aren't just environmentally sound strategies, which are important, that improve the quality of life in neighborhoods, but they're strategic economic development strategies. And I think that's why you're seeing mayors around this country and mayors around the world embracing this kind of new world order on our streets. Yes, it seems inevitable. You know, I have a particular perspective. You know, if our economy is moving toward much more human capital, that we are going to harness the great potential of individuals. Cities are going to be the places where it happens. So we better make them much more livable, attractive, because they're very tied to economic development. But that all sounds very good. And I followed your um, work and, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg's visionary work from a distance. But how did you really say, well, you know, we have these five boroughs in New York. And, I mean, did you get a whiteboard out and say, here are the eight principles? Or did you make a list of principles and politicians? Or did you, It's a great question. How, how, how does one strategically plan from the tip of Staten Island yeah. to the, the, the kind of uh, 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 northern part of the Bronx? Well, it's a great question. And... I was fortunate because I came in right as the mayor was launching Plan YC, which, again, a long-range sustainability plan that looked at how the development was going to happen in all five boroughs. It was a five-borough plan with 127 different initiatives. How are we going to improve you know, our environmental quality of life, our social quality of life, neighborhood quality of life on every single aspect of the city? And so setting the uh, vision was one of the most important pieces. And then we took that vision and brought it down and created a, a strategic plan, basically an operating plan for how we were going to accomplish those goals. And so we had already had this five borough framework uh, 
And so we translated that into this vision for the streets that was about making it easier. What were we going to do on buses and looked at a five borough bus plan to move quickly? You know, we built seven fast bus lines in all five boroughs in just six years, you know, showing that it doesn't take millions and billions of dollars to make these kinds of changes, and it doesn't take decades. You can move fast to transform your infrastructure, you know, as long as you've got you know, strong vision of, you know, where you're going and how you're going to get there. We also moved to show what was possible on the streets of New York. As you know, New Yorkers are a skeptical lot, oh, yeah. very yeah. skeptical. And the idea that we were going to have this greater, greener New York, you know, was met with a healthy dose of, yeah, show me. And so we set out really by painting the city to start, painting the city that we wanted to see. So painting plazas, creating them over a weekend, you know, and turning old abandoned parking lots and from a place that people wanted to park to a place that they wanted to be. And again, not a lot of time, not a lot of money, as you point out. You can do a lot with beach chairs, with paint, you know, with tables and chairs, old, you know, stones from my bridge projects. And so over a very short period of time, we showed the power of the possible on the streets of New York to show so that people changed their expectations of what their streets were for. People thought of their streets as just, you know, avenues for moving cars, moving cars as fast as possible from point A to point B. And there's so much possibility that's trapped in between those lanes. When you'd get a, a and I'm sure a, a, a big boulder, an obstacle would kind of get in the way. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with the reality of power and politics and localism? Yeah. Did, 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 was, were you kind of arm in arm with your staff and the mayor or, you know, I always joke, it gets down to carrots and sticks. <laughs> what, what did you, you do know, when the big problems came? Oh, the big problems come because yeah. if you are challenging the status quo, you know, the status quo pushes back hard. And, you know, citizens are not necessarily used to people coming from the government saying, hey, I want to make your street much better and it's going to be just fine. Right. Right. So there was a lot of resistance. But, you know, the status quo on our streets was the problem that we were trying to solve. Right. Because, you know, you're not going to solve for congestion by giving everybody a car you know, and double-decking our streets. That's not the way that we're going to actually improve the quality of life and the connectivity and the access to jobs and opportunities in the city of New York. We need to do things differently. But not everybody likes bike lanes, and not everybody likes bus lanes, and not everybody likes plazas. So what we did is we worked very, very hard, again, showing what was possible in temporary materials and piloting projects and showing, okay, we'll try it out, and if it works, we'll keep it, and if it doesn't work, We'll put it back to the way that it was before. And that really brought down a lot of the anxiety uh, on these projects. And the other really important piece was that we evaluated every project. And data was key, right? We collected data on all of our projects to look at exactly what happened, measuring the effectiveness of projects. And that went a long way to kind of getting over usually the anecdotal response to a project, like, you know, it reliably you could have appointment or right exactly that the, the air spot. couldn't get a parking right, spot. Right, the ambulance yeah. is too slow. Yeah. Inevitably, you interview a taxi driver right. who tells you something that you can't even repeat right here yeah. within our conversation about how much they hate it. So you go from streets that were governed by anecdote to streets that were governed by analysis, and having that data actually turned some of our biggest opponents into some of our strongest supporters because these were really strong 
economic development projects. When we put down protected bike lanes, the first one in the country on Ninth Avenue, which you've Sure. Been down, seen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of skepticism by the local businesses and the communities along the way. And when we put it in, we found that retail sales for the businesses along the corridor increased by 51%. Mm-hmm. And injuries and fatalities plummeted, you know, because we put these um, uh, pedestrian islands that right. anchor the bike lanes. So for a lot of the senior centers that were along the corridor and a lot of the um, elder uh, uh, a lot of the schools that were along these corridors, it, it narrowed the crossing distance, and and pedestrians became much more visible, and traffic actually worked as well as it had before, because you're actually allocating space on the street in an effective way, and you're embracing everyone, because the streets are for everyone; they're not just for drivers. It's not anti-car; it's really pro options for getting around. Well, I think. Uh you're one of the most uh, visionary and optimistic people uh, that I've talked to to kind of uh, tell me that story about change and transformation, experimentation. Um, your book, however, is called Street Fight. Yes. And uh, you and, and Seth put this book together. When did you start conceiving of the book? When did you start writing the book? We you know, started thinking about it at the end of the administration, right, when we're looking at the, you know, sort of counting down the days uh, to the end of the administration and then, you know, put it together, you know, after we left. And um, so it was a great process, you know, the storytelling that went along across the table and, and uh, sort of reliving some of those fights, you know, because they were, they were big fights. And, you know, the, the lessons in Street Fight are lessons for cities all around the world because everybody faces the same challenges, right? And how do you get over that backlash or that bike lash? Because all transportation, all everybody's, all all of these fights are local, and everybody has very strong feelings about their about their streets. And you know, there were times where I felt like you know there are 8.4 million New Yorkers, and I felt that there were 8.4 million traffic engineers because everybody had really oh, strong right. feelings, you know, about their streets. Um, so, so those battles, those and you didn't even ask the tourists. No, you could have had another no. three or four million. Exactly, people. exactly. Yeah. It was, it was. But you know, it was really interesting. I, you know, when we were finishing up the book, it was it was almost a gift that came down when we were finishing up the book because the you know we'd created Times Square and uh, this new Times Square. We right. pedestrianized Broadway between Forty Second and Forty Seventh Street. And, you know, there was a lot of early skepticism, and it turned out to be a great home run. Um, great for business, great for pedestrian safety, all that. And But after we left, you know, the de Blasio administration was looking at Times Square, and there were these costume characters, Hello Kitty, Superman, these nudas, you know, all these people that were soliciting tips from tourists, and it was creating, hmm. you know, friction there. And so w- w- one of the proposals was to put Times Square back to the way it was before and, and deal with this issue that way. And there was this huge backlash against mm. it. you know. And New Yorkers came out in droves to defend Times Square and the rest of the plazas. And it's so interesting because seven years earlier, people had thought we were crazy for taking the cars out of Times Square. And seven years later, they couldn't imagine putting them back. And so the whole status quo, what people's expectations of their streets were, changed in fairly short order. So I think it's pretty inspiring, you know, to, to look at 
what the possibilities are. And you're seeing the same kind of change being embraced by mayors around the world. And here in Nashville with Mayor Barry, who's really making it a priority to invest in transit and biking and, and looking at what can be done to improve the pedestrian experience with sidewalks. And so, you know, clearly the future of Nashville is deeply tied to the future of its streets. And it's really, I think it's an exciting moment here. Can we use your book and Seth's book as kind of a handbook? All politics is local, including my campus. Absolutely. This this sounds like a pretty good uh, owner's manual uh, for for urban design. Um, What are the most promising and exciting things that you see happening in cities to innovate further and to make them more walkable and more diverse, more affordable, more sustainable? What, what Are there new things that you say, boy, they're building on some really great stuff we did and there's even more that can be done here. You're seeing, I think, a, uh, a growth of the strategies in that you know, you're seeing a, an explosion of bus rapid transit, really full bus rapid transit. You're seeing an explosion of bike share you know, all across the country. That's, that's amazing to see. And new forms of bike share, dockless bike share, lots of different ways of doing it. And importantly, integrating these systems. Because I really think that the future of transportation is almost like a one-stop shop, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have all these disconnected modes. You should be able to drop off your bike, you know, using the same kind of um, payment system as you do to get on the bus, get on the subway, get on the ferry, you know, get into your car, share a car, all of that stuff. We, we need to have, you know, kind of mobility as a service, mm-hmm. you know, that approach. And you're starting to see cities that are looking at, at, at bringing those systems together to really have a comprehensive uh, approach to managing these different networks. Yeah, there's an old um, joke where a college president once said, um, the great American research universities are these collections of incredible institutes departments and schools with fabulous faculty, students, and staff, all connected by the common problem of parking. <laughs> and so in a, uh, I'm sure that parking was a major issue uh, in... <laughs> uh, parking, is, parking is, you know, when you look to take a parking space away from somebody, you oh. know, to change it, it's like taking somebody's firstborn child. I mean, yeah, literally, yeah. that is what it's like. And, and so there was a lot, a lot of screaming about that. But, you know, the other piece is, is looking at it from the, from the business person's perspective. So when we went out on our projects, what we found is in a lot of instances, the um, delivery windows and the parking windows had actually not changed in 50 years. And that we could actually update the regulations to make the street work better for them and, and, and look at managing the street at different times in different ways, taking a different, almost temporal uh, approach because people, the street doesn't have to be used the same way all the time. Right. And so looking at it that way made a lot of other possibilities happen and, and kind of helped mitigate the sting from you know, some of that early work. And then of course, when they saw the economic benefits right. associated with the projects, that helped seal the deal. Yeah, I, we are in, uh, uh, you and I were talking a little bit before, we're engaged in a major land use planning effort 
with our community and with the city of Nashville. And one of the one of the biggest challenges that we have, and most university presidents realize that it could be a job ending, like a mayor uh, term ending uh, 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 venture, is parking. And I have had a number of town halls on parking. And um, one thing that I think you really emphasize that's important is, you know, it's these are these cities are not just a park and move cars through and one third of our land is parking yep and um as you know you can't we can grow stem cells for livers and hearts we have not grown land in our biomedical research center no and and the cost of the dirt and the opportunity costs of the dirt um so we're kind of taking parking on. I have seen a change, and I want to know if this assisted you, is we're seeing fewer kids with driver's licenses coming to college. Definitely. We are seeing Uber, Lyft. We, uh, and I tell the kids, I don't know where you're going, but I get, we put on your suggestion from the book, we put Uber on our Commodore card. Mm-hmm. So you know you 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 go by your dining and then you get on Uber if you want, and so we actually get data regularly from Uber on usage hotspots. Right. And so now it's like, well, let's work with Uber to create a little hangout station or whatever where they come and get kids. Right. And drop them off effectively and efficiently. Did this new generation of young people? without cars and without driver's licenses help you a lot as the culture was changing? Well, I think you're seeing definitely uh, millennials and, um, you know, younger people not wanting to own a car, not wanting to have to deal with a hassle uh, with that. And with the advent of Uber and Lyft, they don't have to. And so, and it really is a freeing experience. And so you're seeing more and more of that. And cities really need to step up their game to accommodate what this means. Because it also affects things like traffic, you know, VMT projections. It it affects a lot of things that drive long-term planning decisions. And so we need to be very smart about how we are using this data, you know, in, in planning cities of the future. And, you know, you pointed out earlier, autonomous vehicles, they are right around the corner. They're, you know, it's like one of those, you know, pictures of the, of the, that you see in the, uh, in a car mirror, the objects are closer than they may <laughs> appear, right? And so that's true yeah. for autonomous vehicles. And so, but one of the big challenges is to make sure that this technology works for cities and not the other way around. Right. So that we, you don't go back to this car-focused design of cities that's all about moving the automated Ubers or the automated Lyfts or the right. automated Waymos, you know, through a city. We have to preserve what makes cities great and yeah. build on that and have the technology work for us and not the other way around. What's uh, Give me, last question, your advice on um, so-called mass transit. I was uh, in conversation with some planning people yesterday and one of the um, distinguished member of the city council and they were saying, have we missed, because we're so late, we shouldn't even think of mass transit. 
that it's just too late. No. And we've got to come up with new strategies. But you talk Transit in the most complex a- environment in the world, or at least in America. We build high-speed buses. We Transit we is the future. Transit is the future. Transit is the future of cities. Yeah. You know, you're not going to move. You know, people say, "Oh, well, we shouldn't build this bus rapid transit rail or this light rail because, you know, there's Uber and Lyft." It's like you're not moving that many people. It's still that person in a car, right? You look at a street. You know, there's that famous. You know, you can move. 60 people buy a bus, you know, and how much space does that right. take out? Or 60 people on a bike, how much space does that make up? Or 60 people in a car? It's, it's basic math. Right. You are not going to be moving those people, you know, that volume of people that you want to build, uh, that you want to move in anything other than transit. And I think the challenge, though, for cities is to build high-quality, attractive, fast, convenient transit so that it's not just poor people that are riding the bus, that, you know, everybody's riding the bus. And that's, you know, one of the secret sauces in New York City. You know, everybody is riding the subway, no matter what economic right strata that they are. And so I think that that's a, I think it's a a fundamental down payment on a better Nashville. Well, Jeanette, uh, this has been a great opportunity for me to have you on the Zeppos Report. I hope we can have you back here and back to Nashville. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation.